Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Again, as I mentioned, if you're visiting, we've been working our way through this wonderful letter of Paul's as he is sitting under house arrest in Rome, awaiting to see whether he will be let go or whether he will be executed. He ends up being released for a short time, for a few years more ministry, but he does not know that for absolute certainty, although he is convinced it is likely in the Lord. And we are now moving into the last chapter of the letter. Have you noticed this about Paul's letters? When he gets to the end, you often have this barrage of commands that sort of come really quickly. So, if you're reading through Romans, all this rich theology, and then what chapter do you get that list of commands? 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, same with Ephesians and on and on. Well, here you get a little bit of a version of that in Philippians where we're going to have, we're going to be covering seven points today because Paul's just moving really quickly, and my options were preach seven really weird sermons trying to cover that or just do it as one. So, the, kind of the, the banner of the whole sermon is how a church can stand firm in the Lord. And that's coming from the first verse, to stand firm in the Lord. So, how can a church stand firm in the Lord? And then he's going to tell us seven ways. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to walk through these slowly just so you hear them all, and then we'll sort of move through them in more detail. So, in verse 1 and point 1, Paul basically is showing us, be affectionate, not indifferent. Point number two, this is verses two and three, be unified, not divided. Number three comes from verse four, be joyful, not dry. Number four comes from verse five, be reasonable, not quarrelsome. Number five, which comes from verses six and seven, be prayerful, not anxious. Number six, which comes from verse eight, be thinking, not passive. And number seven comes from verse nine, be practicing, not lazy. So, I'm just going to say the B's. Okay, here we go. Number one, be affectionate. Number two, be unified. Number three, be joyful. Number four, be reasonable. Number five, be prayerful. Number six, be thinking. And number seven, be practicing. So, let me read the passage for us. And this is, again, God's Word, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. My guess is a few verses there are especially well known to us about the anxiety passage, which is a wonderful passage, but we're going to be kind of working through this in some more detail perhaps than sometimes we, we do reading this. I, I don't know about you, when I read this section, I tend to sort of just gloss over certain parts without stopping to really meditate on them, and so I hope today we can together meditate on what is being said here. So, n- number one, be affectionate, not cold and indifferent. Listen to the words of affection that Paul lavishes on this church. Now, the first one is more normative. We're used to calling brothers and sisters in Christ, but here it is, verse 1, therefore my brothers, which is a term of affection. Then he says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. Six of those words, six of them in one verse are words of love and affection that Paul is lavishing on this church. And so, how do we apply this to ourselves? It's pretty immediate and obvious, but we, we need to guard our hearts against a kind of callousness and indifference towards the community of our church. It is very easy to sort of get involved with my own personal life and work and family and to just not be as dear and affectionate and close with members of the church as the Lord would have me be. And that, I think, is true for all of us. So, are we making effort to maintain those close relationships based in Christ in this room? Or are we sort of wanting to stand at arm's length? Are we sort of wanting to be a little bit cold, a little bit indifferent, a little bit a step away, or do we want to be involved deeply in the community of God's people? Now, time for true confessions here. When I was in college, and yes, I was even studying the Bible while this was happening, which makes it even worse, uh, when I was, I was studying the whole Bible, I was studying the Bible, both Testaments, for a few years at Tekel Falls College, and while there... Um, this is, I was about ages, I guess, 20 to 23, right in there. And I'll be honest with you, it was, it was about the, it, in fact, it was, it was the least involved with a local church that I was in my entire life. Uh, it, it is extraordinarily easy, especially in those college years, I think. That's why I'm encouraged to see college students in this church who love the local church. It's so easy to sort of say, okay, I got my little small group at my college. And I'm taking, I mean, one of my classes is the Gospel of John. It's not like I'm not getting Bible. I'm doing New Testament survey, Old Testament survey, systematic theology. I mean, I'm doing Bible study every day, all day in class and for homework. And I've got a small group. And we even have chapel four days a week. I don't really think I need to be that involved on Sunday. So I did a lot of sleeping in on Sundays. I did a lot of not attending on Sundays. And if I'm being honest, I probably went to church about once a month for for my time in Bible college. You're like, we should go to another church. Maybe, yeah, maybe you should find a pastor who goes to church more regularly. So, uh, I will tell you that there was a major, major turning point. 
I even was talking to some pastors this past week who I had just met, some of them, at least one of them I had just met for the first time, and they were asking me about this, and I, I brought up this moment in my life because it was that important to me. 2010, I finished college, and I started attending Watkinsville First Baptist Church, and I got involved with the college ministry there with Vic and Fred, uh, Fred Schuler, our very own in the back there, and I will tell you that that was a fundamental turning point in my life because I was meeting people my age and older and younger who were passionate about the things of the Lord. I can remember being in a Bible study with Fred on a Tuesday night, uh, a, a, a Bible study called Fight Club, don't ask questions about what happened there, and uh, it, Fred, Fred, Fred and Vic led this thing, and it was, it was just life-changing for me, but w I remember one early night, uh, there was a, a guy, maybe a, about my age, who stood up and shared about evangelistic conversations he had had on campus at UGA that day. And I was like, I haven't done evangel. I haven't done, I haven't had a conversation with an unbeliever about Jesus in a long time. And I'm hearing this guy share about it, and then I hear another guy share something about his encounter earlier this week, and we need to pray for this person who doesn't know the Lord. And I was seeing this zeal and passion in the local church for lost people that I frankly had grown cold to. And it, I don't know if you ever have this experience, like I am missing out on something really good. You ever have that experience? Like, I, where have I been the last few years? I've been, I've been sort of on the periphery of something so good for me that the Lord has given me. I mean, when the Lord commands us to be committed to His people, it's not a duty. It, it's a delight. This is a wonderful thing. I mean, He says, in this age, we will have manifold times, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the local church, and then in the age to come, eternal life. And that turning point came, and I fell deeply in love with the local church, and the Lord has just shown me how vital it is. Lone Ranger Christianity isn't an option for us. We must be committed, and Paul has affectionate words. Do we think of the local church as our joy, our delight, those whom we are, those whom we love, our beloved in the Lord? Do we think in affectionate words? Is our heart involved, not just our head, when we think about God's people, and this is a challenge to say, there, is, there are riches here. And if, if you, I don't know everybody here, if you're like I was in college and you're, you're saying, yeah, I've been sort of at arm's length from the local church, I don't want to so much guilt you as I want to invite you into a life-transforming opportunity that the Lord has put on the table that we be committed to His family in time and space here, not just be part of the church vaguely in general, but part of the church, local and particular? A Babylon Bee article just came to mind. This is a dangerous moment. This is a good Babylon I think I mentioned it a year ago or so, but it says, man uh, who refuses to join local gym is committed to the universal gym. I'll let you think about that one. That one's pretty good. So we need the local church, not just sort of a vague sense of belonging to the church generally. We need to be committed to, to one another and, and have these affectionate words and not feel cold or indifferent to the people of God like I was for those several years. Number two, we need to be unified. This goes hand in hand with that. This is an intriguing passage. Let me read it again, verses two and three. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Now, I'll tell you, we, we don't know really anything about these people mentioned in this verse outside of these two verses. So, there is heavy speculation. I, mean, I read one commentary, and this guy is sure it means this, this, and this. And this other guy, no, 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 it means this over here. And it, we, we can't be too dogmatic about exactly what's happening. But if I was to kind of give just a general guess, okay, take it with a grain of salt, it would seem as though this is not a doctrinal problem. If it was a doctrinal problem, I think Paul would deal with the doctrine explicitly if it was a major doctrinal issue. Instead, he says they are laborers with Paul in the gospel. Does that sound like heresy? Laboring with Paul in the gospel does not sound like a heretic, right? So, we're not talking, I don't think, about serious false doctrine. I think this is something not doctrinal, but I think there's some kind of relational conflict. Something is out of sorts here. Now, in church history, has this ever happened before? <laughs> so, are, are Southern Baptists known for this? So, what happens is you'll have one member who takes a stand on a really a negligible issue. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's kind of like, you know, we joke about color of carpet stuff, right? Uh, and uh, you, you got, you've got people who take one view over here about, I think we should do this or that. It's not moral. And then another person takes another view on the other side. And you know what inevitably happens? Just guaranteed. People start to assimilate towards person A or person B, right? So you go, oh, I kind of like what she's saying over here. And everyone kind of moves. I'm, I'm behind her. I'm, I'm a Euodia person. We get the shirt, I'm with you, Odia, okay? And then you got the other group who's with Syntyche, even harder to say, perhaps, I'm with Syntyche. And so what, what probably is, I mean, think about it. Does Paul very often name members of churches and give kind of a rebuke in his letters by name? Not very often. He does, he does rebuke some heretics by name. Hymenaeus and Alexander have been handed over to Satan. You're like, okay glad I'm not them, okay? That's First Timothy. But Paul does not normally name members in good standing and give rebukes in his letters. Think about it. It's rare. That's what makes this so interesting. Some commentators think, I don't know how far to take this, some people think that perhaps one of the fundamental reasons Philippians was written was to address the, this issue right here. Has Paul been talking about unity already? Be of the same mind, be of one accord, of one mind. Have the mind of Christ who serves others. Remember, this is running through the whole letter. Perhaps Paul has been doctrinally setting the table for this very moment where he's actually going to name names, and he wants to do it in a way that is the most loving and gracious way possible, and so he sets up lots of gospel doctrine to get us to this moment. Perhaps that is. I do think this is a, a, a significant moment in this letter that is often overlooked. The fact that this letter would be read like a sermon to the church tells you that this did not probably just involve two people, right? Could have been. I think there's a good chance that the church was having disunity generally, and this may have been one of the fundamental issues, perhaps, and Paul sees division coming, and so one of the reasons he wrote this letter, for sure, is to, is to shore up any kind of disunity and listen to the kind of way he, he doesn't just come down hard here. L listen one more time. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. He uses the word entreat for both of them, showing real concern for both, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, perhaps an elder, we don't know who that is, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Is Paul doubting their salvation? No. He says, I have full confidence their names are written in heaven. We, we are saved together. Number two, these women have faithfully labored with me, the Apostle Paul, in the gospel. Is that a pretty complimentary thing to say? 
I mean, th- these are not heretics. These are not uh, some kind of, these are not two evil people. These are upstanding women who love the Lord. Their names are in heaven, and they've served with Paul in the gospel. Perhaps these were the women, remember in that prayer meeting in Acts 16, along with Lydia, who were first converted in Philippi? Very possibly. We, we can't prove that. And Paul says here, notice, does Paul bring in a third party? I ask you, true companion, to help these women. So, so there's sometimes in a case where there's relational friction to bring in a third party, the true companion, to bring this person in, maybe with a different perspective, to help these two women reach unity and agreement. Does this mean that two Christians are going to agree on everything in life? Like exactly how you parent your kids, exactly how you do dating and marriage, exactly how, exactly how. Probably not going to find a hundred Christians who have exactly the same view on everything. But on the fundamentals, should there be enough there in unity in Jesus to create harmony in relationships, even when we don't agree on everything? Now, I don't know if you know this, but it is an election year. Y'all may have, that may have fallen off your calendar. It's coming up. It's coming up. And um, now, I'm 33. Some of you are probably, you've been around for a lot more elections than I have. But I, I can tell you easily in my lifetime, and as I look back, I would say uh, longer than that, I, I have never seen the tension politically that I am experiencing right now. And I, I bet you would, most all of you might agree with that. Um, it is off the charts. And I am under the opinion, and you would probably agree with me on this, I, I see the next split amongst the American church and perhaps in other countries as well, but I, I'm thinking American church. I think the next split is not going to be fundamentally, first of all, doctrinal per se, explicitly. I think people might have the same doctrinal statement and split anyway, because I think the way we are understanding politics is becoming more fundamental to our identity and sense of self than our view of Jesus and the gospel. And so, I actually see that there's kind of a vacuum as, as, as real Christianity moves to the side, the vacuum that is filled is politics itself. And there is a religious fervor about politics and about the identity that I have in relationship to my politician or my policy or whatever it may be. And it, it's not my job. There are certain political issues that are clearly moral and that we must address. I'm not going to tell you every single bit of politics and how you should believe on every single issue. That's not my role in some of those areas that are not as clear biblically, some of them are very clear, but we must do all that we can to maintain unity in Jesus, even if on secondary matters there are different viewpoints on certain issues. I'm not saying different viewpoints on, say, abortion or something that clear, but even if there's going to be a different approach on certain issues, we need to let our agreement in the Lord come first and then begin to, with grace and without the fever and without the temperature going up, we need to learn to talk through with beloved brothers and sisters differences on secondary issues. It's fine to talk about it, but we must not be like the world. There needs to be a gentleness a reasonableness, it's, by the, it's coming up on a couple points here, reasonableness, uh, as, we, as we talk about these things that shows that our fundamental beliefs are based in the gospel and our unity in Jesus as we work through some of these difficult issues moving out from there. Uh, look with me here at number three, to be joyful. This is verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Spurgeon has a sermon. I think the title is Joy a Duty. 
I recommend Googling it and reading it. Joy a Duty by Charles Spurgeon. It is a tremendous meditation on this verse. Did you know that this command is not a suggestion? Sometimes we make joy sound sort of trite, like it's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal, kind of take it or leave it. It's the, you know, the icing on the cake, you know, it's no big deal. Joy is fundamental to living the Christian life. Uh, another turning point in my life was back as I was graduating high school, I read John Piper's book, Desiring God. Uh, the subtitle will get you every time, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. You're like, uh, John, uh, what are you saying? He says, I'm not, I don't mean the secular definition of hedonism like, you know, partying and all that. He says, I mean hedonism as in a life devoted to joy in the Lord. I, I am pursuing joy in the Lord with all that the Lord gives me. And, and I would say, it is not only not wrong to pursue joy in the Lord, it is commanded, and think about the grace of God in that command. God says, I want your life to be overflowing with joy and satisfaction. I saw a quote the other day, the, the Puritans, for the Puritans, those writers who are rich in their thinking about the Bible, the Puritans said, for them, holiness and happiness were synonyms in their vocabulary. Uh, if you read them, you read Edwards, read the Puritans, they speak as though pursuing your happiness is pursuing your holiness, because pursuing sin is, is pursuing the destruction of your happiness. You, they mean happiness in a deep sense here. Uh, and so, this is, the, this is the Lord spreading a banqueting feast on the table, the best food and drink, and you are starving and famished. And you've been trying to, out of the, out of the gutter of the world, find nutrition to keep you going. And you've been drinking the, the dirty water running through that gutter, and you're trying to maintain sustenance from the world's supply. And the Lord says, I have something not just better, it's what I made you for, myself, joy in the Lord. And He spreads a feast out in front of you that is available for free because Jesus paid for it with His blood. And any moment of the day, you wake up miserable at three in the morning, that feast is available right there for you. You just turn to the Lord and ask Him, Lord, give me the joy of Your Holy Spirit. Work that within me. Help me to be satisfied in You. And when our joy is in the Lord, remember Nehemiah? I just got to tell you this real quick. comes to my mind. This is going to be a long sermon, I have a feeling. Things are coming to my mind. <laughs> so, in, in Nehemiah 8, famous scene, Ezra and Nehemiah are there, and I think it's Ezra, reads from the law all day. He reads from the law for hours makes a little pulpit a little. They have a little place to read from. They make a little pulpit, and he's reading, and the people hear the Word of the Lord. And you remember what happens? After hearing the law for hours, they are all weeping. We need the law. That's what Scott was just talking about. It shows us where we fall short, where we're pursuing joy in the wrong things. And they are weeping. And then all of a sudden, as they are weeping, everything turns. You know the verse? Cease weeping, let's have a feast, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. What just happened? This is Old Testament. They preached the law, they felt conviction, they wept in repentance, and then what does he say? You're forgiven. It's time to celebrate the joy of the Lord is your strength. And they have a massive, holy party, a feast before the Lord, and their joy is 
just erupting out of the fact that they've been forgiven of their many sins, and the joy of the Lord is their strength as they go about the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, number four, look at verse five. Let your reasonableness, some translations, your gentleness, be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. I'll just comment on this briefly. Going back to our previous discussion, is the world reasonable and gentle in its discussion of issues today? Have you been online recently? Have you ever made the mistake of reading YouTube comments under any video? I hate you. No, I hate you. Okay, it's like, wow, this is wonderful. Um, if you go on Twitter, and okay, I admit it, I use Twitter. If I, if, when I'm on Twitter and I'm scrolling through, yeah, uh, I, I'm scrolling through, I just see vitriol. You familiar with that? So just, just venom coming out of people's mouths as they communicate. It's all about embarrassing another person, just shaming another person by our words. And Paul says, no, gentleness and reasonableness is our demeanor and our approach. We, if there's a disagreement on something we are passionate about, let it be a reasonable and gentle way that we speak to our brothers and sisters. We don't dehumanize them. We speak to them in a reasonable and gracious way. Why? The Lord is near. He's at hand. Now, whether that means He's near like the Lord is with us, like He's here right now, which is true, or He's coming soon, He's near, I don't know which one He means, but they're both true right? The Lord is with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them. I will never leave you. I'll be with you. That's true. He's here right now. And He's also coming soon. And whichever of those Paul's emphasizing, they both should motivate us to say, let the Lord's nearness and second coming influence the way I speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, maybe the most famous part of our passage, number five, be prayerful, not anxious. Let me read six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, how do you deal with anxiety? The world has different ways of navigating anxiety. One way is to distract you from what's bothering you. Just don't think about it. I mean, you can literally, I did this a while back, I googled about stress and anxiety to see what secular websites would say, and I looked at, you know, a bunch of them, you can find them, five steps to dealing with stress or anxiety, you know, ten steps, and inevitably, as you read them, you know what they, they don't say? They don't say, think about anything. It's always you know, sit still, clear your mind, stretch, exercise, eat healthy, you know, think about some beautiful location. Imagine you could be at this island or something. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, that'll, that'll deal with it all. So, basically, the, the approach is sort of get the thing that's bothering you, the, the, the thing that's right in front of you, get it out of your mind. Stop thinking about it and f- just kind of empty your head. Just kind of think about nothing. Just think about something uh, that, that has nothing to do with you. Distract yourself. Think about those kinds of things. Another way that people deal with it is, you know, it could be alcohol, drugs, entertainment. We want to distract ourselves, numb ourselves. So, there's something just haunting you in your life that is just miserable. And so, to forget it for a few hours, people turn to alcohol. People might turn to drugs. They might even abuse prescription drugs. They just want to kind of numb it, get rid of that for a little bit, try to deal with it. 
Other people deal with endless entertainment. So you've got a presentation this Tuesday. You're like, thanks for reminding me. You got a presentation on Tuesday, and you're, you're dreading it. So what do you do? You stay up all night tonight binge-watching a show. How's that going to help me get ready for Tuesday? I don't want to think about Tuesday, and if I can distract myself with some Netflix for a while, I can just sort of not think about it. And when it comes back on Monday, I'll have to deal with it then. But we want to distract ourselves. We want to get our minds off of it. What's amazing here, I love this. Paul doesn't say, deal with anxiety by forgetting reality. Paul says, deal with anxiety by remembering reality. Whatever is true, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. What? I mean, when someone, I heard someone say, when you're stressed, in the secular world, if you've got anxiety, does the person come up to you, the counselor say, let's think, what is the meaning of life? Why are you here? Let's answer the big question. No, no one does that, okay? Paul does something like that. Paul says, oh, if you've got paralyzing fear and anxiety as a believer, the problem is not what you're worried about. The problem is that you're not in that moment believing what is actually true enough. You see? See, if you believe that you have a heavenly Father who knows all and is in powerful control of your life and working everything for your good to make you more like Jesus, to increase your joy in Himself ultimately… If, if I believe that, that doesn't mean I don't weep. It doesn't mean that there's no sense of stress ever in my life. But that paralyzing sense of stress would begin to be battled against and fought against by God's promises. So look with me here. He says, in everything, verse 6, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I talk about this about every six months because it comes up in all over the Bible. So you've heard, some of you heard this. You've got, I've got to learn how to process my anxieties, not just before someone I care about, before the Lord. You've got to learn to do what the psalmist does, pour out your complaint before the Lord. Tell your trouble before Him. Pour it out. The Lord has a throne of grace. He's your heavenly Father. He loves when you pour out your concerns to Him. First Peter says it like this, cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Cast them on the Lord. How do you do that? You go alone and you say, God, I am worried sick. Physically, I am sick over this thing coming up in a few weeks. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm worried I'm going to make a, a, a fool of myself I feel incompetent. I feel like I cannot succeed in this area. Everyone's going to know I'm a failure in this thing. You know how dark the thoughts get, right? Sometimes. Maybe it's just me. And, um, and you, 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 say, you tell the Lord exactly the struggle. You, you pour out your, your anxieties before the Lord. You tell it to the Lord, and then you begin to thank the Lord for the gifts He's given you with thanksgiving. And you begin to turn these stressors into opportunities to thank the Lord. Lord, you know what? Thank you that I even have this opportunity. Thank you that this is even a possibility in my life, whatever it may be. And then over time, begin to preach truth back to ourselves. And God's peace, which doesn't make sense to those who don't know Him, will, will become a guard around your heart. I just learned that word guard, Paul uses it. 2 Corinthians 11, at the very end. Remember this story? He's in Damascus after his conversion. The king he dispatched troops to guard the city to catch Paul, but Paul went through a window in a 
basket and was lowered to the ground. He uses the same word that these Roman soldiers were guarding the city looking for Paul. Now, just picture this. You've got dozens of soldiers roaming around trying to capture Paul. Well, in that case, he did not succeed. But when God sends a guard around your heart and your mind, the Lord succeeds. He is guarding your heart and mind against worry and anxiety in those moments. Imagine that. God guarding you against unwarranted fear and paralyzing anxiety to such an extent that the world cannot explain the peace that we begin to experience in the midst of what looks like an insurmountable storm. Okay, verse, uh, excuse me, number six, be thinking. This is verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I will not take the time to walk through each of those words. Uh, but just up to one thing, and this always, this always is slightly annoying when someone does this to you, so here you go. Let's go back to entertainment for one second here. Think about the things that we watch for entertainment, and think about the list of words here. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Are we being entertained by that which is sinful? Are we at times actually finding enjoyment in the display of sin in shows and movies that we watch? This is not me saying every movie you've got to watch has got to be rated G or something like that. It's not what I'm getting at. But do these movies and the entertainment that we expose ourselves to, and it could just be YouTube or whatever, are these things going to increase our love of the Lord and our love of what is true and excellent and just and pure, or does it make our mind feel polluted? Do we begin to have thoughts that are not lovely, that are impure, that are not honorable, and that are not righteous and just? I, I am just, this here's one thing, I'm going to sound puritanical here, ladies and gentlemen, just hang with me. One thing I'm convinced of, I, I just am certain of, you know how we, we can never see ourselves very clearly because we're, we have blind spots? I think not only do we have individual blind spots, I think we have cultural blind spots. If you took the stuff that you and I have watched in the last year for entertainment and you showed it to any Christian from Spurgeon's time period, 1850s back, they would be utterly appalled by what I have called entertainment. I think they would be dumbfounded. I think they would have a hard time making sense out of how I could even be a Christian and have watched some of the things I have watched in my life. I think that would be almost a question. So, let's take seriously what it is we put in front of our screen. Okay, this, this is… Uh, I, so, I teach high school, right? And um, sometimes I'll have these little moments in class. At least it happens once a year where I'll, I'll say something like this and the students roll their eyes like, thanks, Dad, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll push back. They'll push back. And um, without saying too much here, I'll just, this is an illustration I've given. I've stolen this from other people. 
Just take physical intimacy scenes, okay? I'm going to be careful with my language. We've got kids in the room, okay? Right? You got what I'm saying? In a movie or a TV show. Um, I will ask my students, first of all, how would you feel if that director hired your daughter to do what that actress did in that scene? And they're like, I would not like that producer or director at all, okay? Uh, what if someone did that with your sister? What, what if they hired her to do what that actress did in that scene? Like, oh, and then hundreds of thousands of men see it across the world. Oh, that's horrible. Well, imagine that whatever the couple is doing on the screen, imagine that you just, imagine, I think this is Randy Alcorn may have said this, imagine that you, you invited a couple over to your house and you just put up a big piece of glass and you hired some actors to go on the other side of the piece of glass and to, you know, kiss, make out, do whatever behind the, and you just set, you pop popcorn and you sit down with your friends, you say, Let's, well, this is going to be awesome. And you want, people would call the police on you, like, what are you doing? Think about what we're doing. We have a piece of glass between us and those actors and we just kind of act like, yeah, it's just a movie. It's just a scene. It's no big deal. I'll fast forward a little bit. It's fine. You know. I think we as a culture are unbelievably calloused, and we are unbelievably not taking it seriously what, what sometimes we're exposing ourselves to. John Piper called our entertainment choices of young, younger people, he said, maybe the Achilles heel of the younger generation, that we just aren't even, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. It's just a show. There may be more going on sometimes, and we need, to, we need to put in front of our eyes what is pure and commendable so that our thoughts can be on what pleases the Lord. Okay, finally, number seven, be practicing. Look at verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, do you see? You have the peace of God, and then what do you have? The God of peace on either side of this. Paul says, listen, as we pour out our heart to the Lord, we, we pray to Him passionately about our worries, then we set our minds on what is true. We don't ignore reality. We focus on reality, on God's truth and God's promises and God's Word and what is excellent and commendable and right and true. And then we look at examples like Paul's example. We see other believers who are living faithfully the Christian life. And as we do this, we begin to enact those things. We begin to practice those things. So our thinking must become godly and our prayer life must be focused on the Lord. And then we must begin to choose deliberately to act in a way that corresponds with godliness, even when it's hard, even when it costs us. And in those moments, guess what? The peace of God fills our heart and the God of peace goes with us. Is that not an awesome thought? So just think here, on the table again, laying in front of you this feast, let's just call it peace from the Lord, God's inexplicable peace that transcends human understanding. It is available to any and everyone in this room. All you've got to do is do what this text says, pour out our heart to the Lord, focus our mind on what is true and excellent, and begin to live out God's commands by His grace, and as we do, we will experience the peace of God, and we will experience the God of peace. And I want to close with this thought here about this joy and this peace that we want to experience, but so often struggle to experience. One person wrote it like this, most people think you get joy and peace when you get what you desire, right? So, I've got a goal. When I reach my goal, I'll have joy and peace. But real joy comes when you realize what you deserve. 
So listen, not when you get what you desire, but when you realize what you deserve. The realization of what we deserve, God's righteous judgment, and what we've actually received instead, God's salvation, should lead us to great joy and peace. It's not about getting what we want. It's about being grateful for all that we have in Christ Jesus. So let's fix our mind on what is true, particularly at the center is the gospel of Jesus' saving work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the world right now is troubled in so many ways. There is violence, there is anger, there is division, there are factions, there is hatred. Lord, because of how dark it is in our culture over so many issues that have been made political in, a, in an election year like this, help us as a church to stand firm in the Lord. Help us to be different from the world. Help us to be a city on a hill. As I prayed before, let us be salt and light. Let us be different, but let us be wonderfully different from the world. Help us to be unified and joyful. Give us peace as we pray. Help us to obey and practice these things and give us a deep affection for one another, brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is only possible because of the work of your Son, and we pray this in His name. Amen.